I want to welcome everyone to episode number 25 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting at August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how are you? Good. I was as crazy back then as I am now. <laughs> Attending every show over five years, over a five-year period, yeah, you know. Yeah. And let's think about that first. That that was that's a that's an amazing run because you first of all you were young, very young at the time. What were you you just turning fourteen when you started? Uh, I yeah, I went uh, when I was fourteen years old in August of seventy-one. Uh, I, I was just talking with my buddies, and we were talking about growing up on Long Island and going into the city. It was very rare that we went to the city. You know, we had the Nassau Coliseum at the time, so we didn't really go into the city for a lot of things, even for concerts. They, they play the Garden, and then they play the Coliseum. So when we did go into the city, it was something. You, being even younger than we were, going into the city on the train by yourself every month, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I was, um, and my mom was always a worrier. Didn't ever want me to leave the house. Matter of fact, I had gotten a mini bike. You got a uh, mini bike? Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I pestered my dad, and on Christmas Eve, he surprised me and took me into the mini bike store, and I got a mini bike for Christmas. And like an idiot, you know, I took it in the basement and I started it up. Of course, uh, inside uh, first and foremost, and that uh, that wasn't pleasing. <laughs> wasn't you were, allowed you were inside with a mini bike. What are you doing? Yes, <laughs> with the fumes, and you know, they heard it start up, and they're like, "What are you crazy?" Because it was winter, obviously. But uh, I was the only one. Because two of my other friends had gotten mini bikes too that Christmas, and they're riding it around, you know, the little town, and it's illegal, whatever. But my mom wouldn't let me leave the property with the mini bike. You know, when the weather got warmer, I rode it in the backyard, and I, you know, I rode around the house over and over again with a little trench. How big was your backyard? Uh, we had a hundred by a hundred square foot property. Oh gosh, <laughs> that's nothing. You must have called, like made, made like a hole out of oh, the yeah. track. Oh yeah, you know she, you know she was like she warned me, "Don't you take this outside the gate." A couple of times I did that, uh, but for the most part I was landlocked. So uh, yeah, her letting me go into the city, huge at fourteen. Yeah, every month it wasn't easy for her. No, no, that, that's a huge <laughs> thing it, because you weren't like I, I would think it's easier to get to some of the smaller towns, even easier to get to like the Boston Garden than that. You have to take the LIRR, and uh, it, it was like an hour ride, wasn't it? It was at least an hour, and, and it was always off peak. So you try to get that, that off peak um, express which only made a couple of stops instead of that whole Long Island Railroad. You know, you lived on Long Island, but I knew every the stop train line. Babylon, next stop, Babylon. Yeah, it was like Penn Station. It'll be Woodside, Jamaica, Lindbrook, Rockville Center, Belmore, Seaford, Massapequa, Massapequa Park, Amityville, Copeg, Lindenhurst, and Babylon. Change at Babylon for the train to Ronkonkoma. It's so funny because a couple of years ago, I went back uh, to New York and I was staying in the city. I realized when I got there, I'd never stayed in the city. I stayed in the city before, but I'd never actually flown in and had to take the train there. So I had to, there's a shuttle that goes from JFK to Jamaica and you get on the train to Jamaica yeah. and you take it in the city. Then you get on the subway. It just... Think it they, was, yeah. I had it easy with the with the Long Island Railroad. We'd go right into Penn, go upstairs 
Go to the show. And, you know, out of high school, I would, you know, we get out of two o'clock, run home, change your clothes, get your camera, and then go uh, first. What we used to do when my friend Frank and I, we'd, we'd go to the newsstands and make sure that we got all of our wrestling magazines. You know, every month there were like 10 or 12 different wrestling magazines. What? So you'd, you'd load up on the wrestling magazines. So you did this in New York? Is that where you were? in? Yeah, you, that's you, where we used to, because there were a couple of newsstands that were like these massive newsstands that would have all the wrestling titles and you know, all the books, all the magazines, and, and we would do that and sometimes it would be uh, a little too much uh, because you'd have like eight magazines in your lap or in a bag or whatever uh, but we had to do it it was coming home that's why that 11 p.m curfew was so critical to make sure you got that 11 10 train uh, and then you'd have to wait an hour and then you wouldn't get home till after one in the morning and so it was it was you know it was a challenge but i was young I was a kid it was like my uh, monthly sabbatical i mean i couldn't miss it i, I god forbid i would have missed one of the shows back then i don't even know how you survived this long because i can just see you running in your house grabbing yeah. your camera changing your clothes running out real quick making down on the yeah. train you got to make it on time because if you miss that train when do you get in next you could be late for the show and then finally when you get on the train <sighs> all right i'm on and the then, train and look at it this way when i started getting integrated in the business like after i got my press pass and here we are like in 75 and you know i'm 17 just about to turn 18 um, and then it was kind of like you're hanging out at the bar afterwards you would leave the garden show and i'd go right to the savoy bar which was across from the edison hotel on 46th street and that's where the wrestlers hung out after the show D those turned into late nights because the bars are open till 4 a.m. And you don't want to leave because something great's going to happen. Yeah, you don't want to leave. I mean, you get in there and, you know, you get there and, and the first person you always saw was Captain Lou Albano. He was always the first one at the bar and the last one to leave. But then, you know, you, Bruno San Martino would come in and, you know, there's Andre the Giant and here's all, you know, it just and it was a bar that only held 100 people, 150. It was a small little dive bar. Did you ever leave early and then you find out later on something really cool happened? Not to anything I remember, no. No, but it was like it was challenging. And I was a kid, you know, and then and then the other challenge was that's where the um, the streak stopped. Once I started going to college, then I had to make a decision. I couldn't go to New York for every go. I couldn't go. What, what is that from the from? Uh, I started I started college in 75, September 75. I, I, I went to Graham Junior College. So uh, for the first like, you know, like a kook, uh, I would make that trek and try to get home for the weekend and miss a day of college and then head back on either the night after the show and take a Greyhound bus back to Boston. And then I finally was like, this is crazy. So I just stopped going every show. Well, how long was that ride? Now, if you don't know Boston, you know, so you got, if you're in New York, then you have to go through this great state of Connecticut and then Rhode Island, then Boston. At least four hours, at least four to five hours. Each way. Yeah. Yeah, you are crazy. That's a long ride. Because cause you, you did have this little place up there called the Boston Garden, and that's where you could go I, to I went shows. to those shows, too, because those were typically all weekend shows, and a lot of them were like matinees. You, they'd wrestle on a Saturday afternoon. Did you ever do a double one month where you got to go to the Boston Garden and then the Monday night go to the Madison Square Garden? Oh, yeah. 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 Ooh, that's a lot. That's and then lot. there was Philadelphia. You did Philly, then, too? Yeah, well, the Philly TV tapings were every three weeks. 
And I'd go to the Philly TV tapings because they taped three shows. And I did that really literally. And my first show in Philly was, uh, I believe it was in January of 75. And I went with George, George Napolitano. I mean, I, I drive with him. So you would be in Boston. Uh, when would the tapings be? What day of the week? They're on a Tuesday. So you'd be in Boston. You'd leave either Monday night or Tuesday morning. Take a train or a bus down to New York, meet yeah. George, jump in George's car, drive another two and a half to three hours to Philadelphia, yeah. watch the TV tapings. When do they usually start? Jeez, six, seven o'clock. It's probably seven o'clock. Seven o'clock. On it. And then we typically sleep or we'd go to Hamburg. Uh, Hamburg was Wednesday because championship wrestling was taped at the Philadelphia Arena on 45th and Market Tuesday nights every three weeks. And then... You'd go to Hamburg, PA, where they would tape at the Fieldhouse, and that was all-star wrestling. That was the Joe McHugh ring announcer, and the night before was Buddy Wagner, typically, and then Gary and Michael Capetta took over for him. But there were many times that I did that, many, many times. I mean, once I started getting a taste of the TV tapings, and that's where I took a lot of pictures. I mean, it wasn't like every single show, especially when I went to college. I remember the last TV taping I attended was uh, when I wrestled. What? Okay. So you started I wrestled in- January I wrestled in January 10th 78. So at we're Philadelphia talking, TV. That's 3 years. You were doing that for 3 years. Yeah, I mean, summer times were easier. That that year in 75 it was every 3 weeks, every 3 weeks until I started college and I couldn't do it all the time. Yeah. But certainly there were winter breaks, there was spring break, there was summer break. So you'd get plenty of shows. I was going to uh, say how did you even how did you even pass college because it's not. They're not close. They're they're four different states. Yeah, four right. or five different states away. What are we talking? You're talking in your. You're in Boston. Then you got to go through mm-hmm. Rhode Island, Connecticut, mm-hmm. New York, yeah. New Jersey, yeah. and then you're down yeah. to Pennsylvania. That's five states. You're going to five states, and then you got to get back to college. Yeah. Imagine, imagine going after I wrestled that night on January tenth, seventy eight, and I got concussed by Dusty, and I wrestled, you know, the strongbow match, you know, and I wound up taking the train from Philly back to Boston after I wrestled all night long to get back to college. Oh, well, I like the idea of getting on one train because I'm thinking buses because you said you had to take a bus sometimes from Boston yeah, to New York. Yeah, a bus was a nonstop. I mean, but you could stop in Hartford to pick people up. You could make several stops along the route. But it's longer, as, too. As a train did, too. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. I was, That's... you know, I was a teenager. And I wrestled. When I wrestled, I was only 20. I mean, I was three weeks shy of my 21st birthday. Let me ask you, when when, when you knew about, you know, you got to get in this match, did you go, hey, I, I have an idea? Let me uh, let me let me do a drop kick on you. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I I was scared shitless. I was absolutely out of my mind. I I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to work a man. I didn't know how to any of that. I didn't know how to do a body slam. I didn't know how to do anything. I was out of my mind. I I was out of my mind. I was out of my mind. You're lucky you just got a little concussed because that it could have been I'm so lucky. much worse. I'm lucky. And after you know the first match, it was like they knew. And then, you know, the second match, I was in that tag team and they wouldn't even let me in the ring till the finish where I got thrown in the top rope and got, you know, headbutt by my V and Strongbow pinned me in the third taping. And then I was supposed to go one on one with Backland, Bob Backland. And that was uh, at the end of the second, you know, Monsoon was like, all right, kid, you're done. Oh, he saved you're you, done. John. He saved your life. Backland would have stretched you. Made that 90 bucks, man. Oh, it was $100. It was $100, but $10 was taken out for the license fee for the night. Of course. Of course. And and we always say this. You did only wrestle two matches, but you <laughs> yeah. did, you wrestled three Hall of Famers. Yes. Almost a fourth. 
in in one night. Yeah. That's that's a good night of wrestling. That's a good night of wrestling. I would say so. <laughs> well, well, let's get it. We're gonna get into the tickets in a second. I, I just wanted to go <laughs> yeah. over uh, some of your other stuff going on. Since we talked your Blue Jay podcast, well, the Blue Jays uh-huh. are not in the playoffs anymore. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, how is well, we're that still going? Doing the show. You're still doing the show with Gibby, the Gibby Show, right? For now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we're having you know uh, now that the Jays uh, kind of um, disappointed the country of Canada by getting eliminated in the first round, getting swept. The podcast continues. Uh, we're covering what potential free agents could be on the Jays next year. Who should they go after? Rather, who you know, because they have seven free agents of their own they could potentially lose this year. And Gibby's bringing on the guests. We had a Hall of Famer Paul Molitor on last week. I mean, what an amazing career he had. Uh, Ken Rosenthal comes on this week's show, which obviously when people hear this, you know, this is covering November. So the podcast is going to wind down most likely uh, right after the World Series. And we may have an episode or two after the World Series, and then we shut it down and return next spring during spring training. Unless with the baseball winter meetings happening in Nashville this year, I'm trying to convince Gibby that maybe we should get, well, he can, you know, we can get credentialed easily because we might be able to do a couple of specials or like a week of shows during the baseball winter meetings. Ooh. It all depends on a lot of variables. That would be nice. I, I like to hear that. So you got that going. And how about the pro wrestling spotlight? Pro Wrestling Spotlight, I mean, it really is uh, kind of the beginning of the end on the run of the original Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio shows, which ran from 89, 1989 to January of 95. And I was off the air for eight months, uh, November of 93 till August of 94. So now we're back covering the latter part of 94. Uh, so these are the last 12 shows, then that runs its course. And I haven't decided whether or not to continue it to recycle these shows again and kind of put another spin on 89 to 95 again. So that's a that's a big decision I have to make, uh, whether I do monthly specials or whether I continue it. I don't know. All I know is like I'm listening to the 94 shows now as I'm uploading them. It was right after the ECW NWA screw job. And I was planning a wrestling convention, Weekend of Champions 5 at Farmingdale University. And I'm listening to it now because I knew there wasn't a Weekend of Champions 5. Yeah, this and is the first I've heard I knew of it. there wasn't. I was promoting it on the show. Why didn't it happen? And I just listened to this show that we're uploading and we're going to talk about in about a week uh, on the next podcast taping. And it was because ECW decided to run a show the very same night in Philadelphia using a lot of the guys I had booked for my convention and my live show. Oh, and I was going back and forth with Paul Heyman. All right, you could have Cactus or you could have Two Cold Scorpio, but I couldn't have, you know, all these other guys like Sabu and Matt Bourne, Doink the Clown, all these guys that I was going to bring to this Weekend of Champions 5. All of a sudden, Paulie has them working there. So, And when I returned, I noticed that there was crank callers because I finished up at GBB. Mm-hmm. And there were almost like 50% of the callers were cursing me, you know, saying, you know, you fat SOB, you know, just like prank callers. I had just come back on the air and I'm like, why am I even doing this? Yeah. This is the way people are reacting or treating me or why am I even brokering a show and doing this and trying to promote again and getting screwed? I'm like, I'm kind of. I'm kind of done. So it's going to be fascinating to hear the last 12 episodes because I had already been fed up during this last show that I just uploaded. I'm like, at the end of it, too, it was like, maybe I'll be back next week. Oh, wow. 
this is the first time I've heard of Weekend of the Champions 5. And knowing Paul, um, like I did back in the day, I, I would never imagine him, you know, not being helpful to you whatsoever. Um, so it's just funny that, like, he could have used you to save some money. He could have said, "You, we're going to do it this night. You do it this night or this weekend, and you do it this time." Right. It could have changed. It could have saved you both some money in in the whole thing. And, and getting yeah, I mean, you on the line. Dive into it. I guess I'll discuss it more. All I know is that even for the next show that I'll be putting up there, I do miss a week because uh, Herb Abrams ran the infamous pay per view in Vegas. <laughs> so I flew out to Vegas to see that uh blackjack brawl uh rather than do a radio show so uh yeah it's kind of an interesting like i guess i say it all the time who really has the opportunity to go back in a time machine 30 years ago and listen to what you did every single week 30 years ago and this podcast is even more crazy because i'm going back with you 50 years and it's freaking insane and if you want to hear any of the old podcasts or any of them, absolutely, you have to go check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash John Rizzi. It's where we keep the lights on. It's it's what we uh, where all the archives can be found, where all the videos. Well, I should the say lights are out. The li- <laughs> lights aren't out yet. <laughs> we can watch. You can watch all. You can see the videos. You can get pictures. You, you, you get in the door for five dollars. And that's where you can live your wrestling dreams. Even when pro wrestling spotlight. Uh, if John finishes up after 12, you'll still be able to go and listen to all the old episodes. Right oh, there, of course. On uh, yeah, Patreon. it's always there on Patreon, and they've made a new. There's a new uh, site. Like Patreon is upgrading stuff. You could do different things. You could categorize stuff now, and and that's something that I really. It's going to make it more aesthetically pleasing once I dive into that, or hire somebody, or work with somebody to kind of fix it up. Because now, you know, with 200 plus radio shows, they should be easily accessible. Yes. Where it's like, all right, here's the category: radio shows. Boom, and all the shows line up. Here are the photo sets. Boom. Here are the eight millimeter films. Boom. Instead of going back and scrolling over, you know, 600 posts, people can't find shit. Yeah. Yeah. And and now you just make it easier for people to find stuff. And I think it'd be yeah. really great. For so the it's just a matter of time. And I can't, you know, technically and, you know, I'm not a, a wizard, you know, uh, so I'm definitely gonna need some help with someone organizing the Patreon page for me. So I got to figure that out. I'm looking forward to that. Well, you know, after Patreon, we come into tonight's show and let's go into tonight's show because uh, let's go back 50 years. Tim. I'm sorry. We've been talking up a storm here. Today. <laughs> we have been. But I want to start off the show. Well, let me just say, let's start off with New York City. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I'm going to do the whole thing over again. Let me just I probably want to edit this out. All right. Let's go back. Let's go back. To the matches 50 years ago today, New York City, Madison Square Garden, Monday night, November 12th, 1973, bell time, 8.30. Here's why I was getting a little caught up with myself, because I always ask about, well, first of all, the attendance was 16,148, and that is about 6,000 less attendance from last month's lackluster card. We have another 20-minute mm-hmm. draw on this card, but what I wanted to get into, like I always say, hey, John, first of all, Talk about the TV buildup to this. And then we have to talk about your tickets because this is a big, big night for you and tickets. So let's talk about the TV buildup first. It was a life-changing card for me. The TV buildup was what it always was. You know, it's you tape the TV, you do the promos, you're following up with a new challenger for Pedro Morales. So it's your typical buildup. There wasn't anything really special about it other than uh, they promoted it for whatever reason. People didn't respond as much as they have done in the past, and that's why the attendance was only 16,148. Maybe Larry Henning wasn't seen as a credible challenger to Pedro Morales. That was that. It was a normal card 
typical garden card, nothing really exciting with the exception of, you know, Andre was there, which we'll get into. And Vern Gagne was there, but that didn't mean anything to the fans in the long run anyway, because unless you read the national wrestling magazines, like the hardcore fans did, the casual fan didn't give a hoot about Vern Gagne, who he was, and that he was AWA champion. On the other side, when it came up to the tickets, I had uh, talked to this guy I got to know, Mike Abrams, who was a, a photographer. I guess he did a little freelance work, but he always sold his pictures outside the garden or had an album of pictures that fans could buy from him and he was always in the front row so as i got to know mike i kept you know asking him how did you get these tickets how do you get these first row seats why are you in the first row like every month and he finally said that there was a a guy who worked at the box office his name was bill baker that you would go to him the day of the show and you would give him a tip on top of the seven dollar ringside price that's all it was was seven bucks and he would give you a good seat a really good seat. So uh, with me pestering him and, you know, being the uh, gregarious person that I was, he got to like me. And and then he offered to uh, make that introduction for me. And I was scared because it's like, all right, you know, what if I get shut out? What if this doesn't work? And where do I sit? And because I don't have a ticket, what do I do? But anyway, um, that night I was there with my friend Frank Favalli, uh, as I always went with him in those early days. And sure enough, the box office was open, but there was this this one window where Bill Baker opened up his little stanchion, whatever you call it, a little grate. You open it up. It's almost like you're opening up a store with like security on it. And uh, and then he gesture with his hand to come over. And so Mike went up there and he introduced me. This is my friend John, da 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 and, and I was like, all right, you know, here's $10, you know. And I got second row with my friend Frank. I got second row seats. And I was over the moon because here I was now sitting in the second row at Madison Square Garden. It was a monthly uh, deal that started then and it lasted throughout the entire year of 74 and into early 75 until I actually got a press pass and was at ringside shooting with George and Bill Apter and the rest of them. So that was exciting. And that was life changing to me because now I could really take good pictures and I could really film very up close. But as uh, time progressed, I concentrated much more on the uh, still photos than the films. I remember a couple of shows ago, you had that infamous corner shot that you, all you had is the, is the pole the ring post ring post right there in front of you. So you'll never have not, that again. Not a fan. No, it did change your life because now you're taking more pictures, taking better pictures. And when did you I, I remember you got in the magazines early on with a with a picture of a bloody Lou Albano. But yeah. when you started taking these kind of pictures, how long after you started getting these first and second row tickets? Did you sell any more pictures to the magazines? Do you remember? 19, 1974, there was a magazine called The Big Book of Wrestling, an official wrestling guide published by a guy named Tommy Kay out in Scottsdale, Arizona. So at the time, I was running Blassie Fan Club, and I submitted a story on Freddie Blassie managing Nikolai Volkov. Like, Blassie leaves the ring, begins managing Volkov. So I sent it to him, a story with pictures, a month or two later, I get a letter back with a check for 25 bucks. What? 
he bought the story. And that was the way it started for me. It was the official wrestling guide and the big book of wrestling published by Tommy K, where he would pay me 25 bucks. And then uh, my second story was uh, about the feud between Chief J. Strongbow and Captain Lou Albano, also in that big book of wrestling or wrestling guide. And then through Tom Burke who worked at Ring Wrestling Magazine. I got to know Tom pretty well. And before you know it, I'm I'm taking pictures and writing stories for Ring Wrestling Magazine. And uh, I actually got to work in the office at Ring Wrestling Magazine during uh, the summer of 76. I'd gotten a summer job there. And it was basically filing pictures into the, you know, the vast amount of archives that they had file cabinets of every wrestler imaginable. And of course, all the back issues were there for rain. And it was with, you know, Nat Lobey. And, and I was there. I worked every day during the summer months at Rang Wrestling Magazine, making some money. And I started writing more and more and more. And then I uh, was appointed contributing editor for Ring Wrestling Magazine. And then, uh, you know, as I got to know Bill Apter, sitting at ringside and started showing him some of my photos. Uh, and then uh, I would not write for after, but he would then, he would buy pictures from me. So I had uh, like the Russian chain match with Bruno San Martino and Ivan Koloff at Boston Garden. He bought pictures from me. Mil Moscaris, uh, when uh, Dominic DiNucci and Victor Rivera won the tag team titles. I got a whole box here with all of my photos and magazines, uh, everything that was published. And I also so then I got a co- I got a, a cover of a bloody superstar Billy Graham from Wrestling Review magazine and a editor named Mark Thibodeau up in Canada when they were published up there and I don't think I ever got paid for that I got stiffed too but anyway that was kind of the way the journey went for me so this was a big night for you this is a huge night it for was you. it started it yeah it really did it wasn't just hey I'm close I'm having fun now this is you know the next step into getting into the business. Yes. How do I make money from it? How do you make money? And, and let's look back at your first one for $25. Uh, think back at, what was this, 1974? What was yeah. an hourly rate in 74? It had to be like three bucks, maybe? Something like I that. Don't know. I don't know. All I know is 25 bucks was a lot of money for a me. A lot of money. A lot of money. That's a lot of money. Even as a, even as a kid, you know. That's a lot of money. I'm excited about this. this. Is that's cool? I've been waiting for that story for so long. Yeah, and then I started selling my own pictures in an album. You know, because I'd be especially when I got backstage and took post shots of all these guys and the Valiant Brothers and Bruno and like everybody. And then I'd print up five. You know, go to the photo mat and and get these pictures made up and then sell them to wrestling fans outside the garden. Or we'd go to. Um, typically have uh, dinner before the garden shows upstairs at the bowling alley with George Amacropolis, Michael Mansky, uh, Richie Marchand from Philly, and a bunch of hardcore fans from the Philly area. And every time I'd show up every month, they'd say, what do you got? You got new ones? And then, and here they were. And I'm making 50 cents a pitcher or a dollar, whatever it was, dollar a pitcher or whatever. So I'm like, you know, entrepreneurial, enterprising, and, and starting to make money in wrestling. Oh, that's fantastic. I never do that. Look at you. I was going to say, I was going to call you Elmer J. or Rizzi there. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had the pictures today. I wish I, I wish I had those original prints that I sold because those things are like, you know, 50 to 75 bucks a pop now. Because of the old original paper. one. Originally, yeah. Yeah, because of the paper, because of the original print. And uh, I see some of them. They're slabbed with a PSA authentication with my, because I used to write my name on the picture. You know, I'd put a little C, like a copyright John Arezzi. I'd write it in a little magic marker on it. They're out there. 
Still. Oh, and, and so, okay, so if you don't know, PSA DSA is a grading service. They started the years ago doing sports cards. Baseball cards is very known for baseball cards. And it takes your card, and it puts it in a see-through slab, and on the top of, they'll put a little slip on the top saying what it is. PSA DSA graded, tops rookie card, Mickey Mantle, or whatever it may say. Uh, I don't know how long ago, maybe just a couple of years, they started doing photographs. So now yeah. you can give them photographs and they can tell you if this is a real photo, meaning... Right, that they put original photo. Original, original photo. Authentic original photo. Yes. And they do that with like digital photos too. Like I mean digital. Um, like if, if you went to the photo mat, you can, they, mm-hmm. they, they grade those too, saying they're original photos. So you may have the photo negative right now or, or, you know, or, or you have the digital copy, but now the valuable ones are the ones that John used to have. I know. And it has your name on it. You sign it, signed by the artist too. Have you seen somebody yeah. who has, has it slabbed? They call it slabbed. Yes, I have. Yeah. Is that crazy? Yeah, it's crazy because it I sold so many of them and I wish I had them. I wish I had them because I used to make, you know, 10 copies of each one and sure. they'd sell. They would sell. They'd all sell, but I wish I had them. Yeah. You know, I got the negatives, but it doesn't mean anything. If I had those original prints, oh my goodness. Good. I'm trying to figure out a way, Timmy, to, uh, you know, there's leaf trading cards, right? They do a lot of wrestling stuff now. Yep. You know, I reached out to the guy. I, I was, but he's never answered my emails yet, but I'm going to continue to try. Imagine getting a card like a baseball card or whatever. But this has the original negative and on the flip side is the print or on the top of the card is the print or something. Imagine having that as a one of one by a card distributor. Oh. Negative print. I would say that that would be worth a little money for collectors. No, it'd be worth a lot of money for collectors. Those one of ones. Those are those. Yeah, you couldn't. Yeah, because it's only one negative. If you're, you know, have a picture of Andre the Giant against Ken Patera, for example. I know, you know, you're I hot love, on that one. I love that one. Here's the card. Maybe it's a five by seven instead of a like a three, a, a you know, a two by two, whatever it is, like a baseball card. Maybe it's that, and it's the original negative. And of course, what the negative shows. I, I've seen negatives like this before, and it's not what you do. It's it's a little something different. It, um, Disney does them with some things. They don't show the whole thing. So basically, the card transparencies yeah, is a transparency. It, right? So yeah, you would, the, but taking what you want to do is you would make it a, like a five by seven card, and on the bottom will be the negative that's transparent. So you can hold it up to the light and see the negative, and then look or at, there's a white background, or a white background, or something like so that. You could yeah. see that it's the actual negative. Exactly. Or a color slide. I used to have a lot of color slides. I don't have as many as I had wished I did, but that, I do have color slides. All right. So if you're listening out there and, and you're an yeah, entrepreneur. Yeah, you're from Leaf. Yeah, get Leaf <laughs> on the phone. Somebody get Leaf on the phone. But this is like, wow. That's I never even thought about doing something like that. So you're selling individual one-of-a-kind negatives to make individual one-of-one cards. That's great. Yes. I love it. I love it. I have thousands of negatives, man. Let's do it. Let's get going. I love it. Let, let's. It's <laughs> we we get off track so much sometimes. We always get off track so much. So. It's okay. I mean, because when we cover the card, what is it really? It's about yeah. ten minutes. Yeah, it's about ten minutes. It's about same three matches. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's like Bruno winning the title or something really special. Yeah, which this we'll talk about next a, time. Yeah, this card was a snoozer, ex- with the exception of a couple of matches. So let's get I, I, it. Actually, just a couple of matches. But if you do know anybody in in the sports uh, card business, this is something that John wants to work on, and you know, make it. He has so many negatives, so he doesn't know what to do with them. What a hey, great listen, idea! Look, look what's up on Facebook and on Instagram. Look at those pictures that I'm yeah, putting up there. Yeah, those are freaking great pictures. Where can you find them on like eBay? Or in, 
Vince, you know, where can people find any of your stuff? Let's give that a plug. I put I right now it's kind of like I've been putting all these vintage uh photographs up on my socials to drive up fan engagement, which obviously it's there. I mean, at 2 million impressions on my Matt Memories public Facebook page last month. I mean, people dig these things. Some of them get like 4,000 likes and and so I, I you know, I, I I put these things out and people keep saying you should do a coffee table book. You should do a book. You should do a book. There's no profit in books. There really isn't. Yeah. We have a limited audience here. You know what's so funny? I remember um, George Napolitano's books. Remember, oh, yeah. he used to do those books and every yes. page would be a wrestler. What those are so great for is not, you know, not as much even reading them, but getting autographed. And I have exactly. one of his books signed by so many wrestlers. Um, yes. Oh, did I ever tell you? I, I think I told you. That. I don't even know if we mentioned it on the show. Um, just to get off track again, because that's where we usually stay on this show. Um, UWF, one of their first shows, I was there. Richie was there. I had George's book. I know that. We were in like a lobby or something. We had just seen you. You were working the show, going back and forth or something. I think I got, you know, some of the wrestlers were in the lobby. So I think I got a couple of them. And I saw George. And I said, hey, would you sign this for me? And he says, oh, you brought my book. And he was so, George, always a nice guy. He's He was like, oh, can I borrow this for a second? And I go, yeah. And he, he walked away with my book. Now I see other wrestlers coming by. I'm like, wait, 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 George's got my book. What happened? And he comes back. And he had two signatures in it for me. One of them was a cheetah kid, and the other one was one of the Samoans. I think it was off of the Samoan. So cool. And that night, I never got Steve Williams to sign it, but I did get Terry Gordy to sign it in an elevator. That, the book is yeah. full, full of autographs yeah. now from all your shows. Like the WWE does those encyclopedias now. Yeah. And, and people just go to all these conventions to get them signed. Unfortunately, for a, a Matt Memories book from the 70s, pictures of the 70s, Everyone's dead. Pretty much. It's Tony Gurria is still with us. Tony Gurria, you know, Bob there's Backlund. Some, yeah, there's, a, there's like there very so, few. a handful. Everyone is gone. Yeah. So it's like if you put a coffee table book out with the intention of getting it signed, there's nobody left. There's very, very, very few. Very few. And that's sad, but it's the reality. Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's been reality. a few years. It's been a few years. Over 50. 50. <laughs> really? Has it been that long? Has it been 50 years? <laughs> well, let, yeah. let's let's go back into the show. Um, this one is back on uh, HBO, and uh, can't believe I'm still alive. You are still, and you're still going strong too. Doing those power walks, doing those power walks yeah. in Tennessee. Uh, this one's back on HBO, including Vince McMahon as commentary. So let, let's go to the first matches, since uh, and there, you know, again, we we talking some long matches here that mm. really don't need to be long. They don't need to be long, right. but they're long for. I guess we were talking earlier about HBO being there. And HBO probably said to them, you know, how long did the card usually run? Like two hours, John, roughly? Uh, two and a half hours, 8.30 to 11. So if, if you say to them, you know, two and a half, it's got to be two and a half hours. And then when you're talking television, that's that's hard time. When you're talking a house show, it could be on and off. It doesn't have to be exact, you know? Right. But uh, a house show that is on HBO, HBO goes, I need it for this exactly amount of time. And that's what you got to give them. So you got to make sure this is a long match. If Pedro's going to do a shorter match, this was going to be a longer match, and it may, you rather see the Pedro match longer, but then you get this match. Match number one, Jose Gonzalez defeated El Olimpico in 15 minutes, 22 seconds. Yes, uh, Gonzalez versus Olimpico. I think this was Gonzalez's second time there, and of course, um, he's so notorious. Uh, he made his debut in 66. He retired in 2022, uh, but known for... The event that took place on July 16th, 1988, when he fatally stabbed Frank Goodish Bruiser Brody. 
Uh, can, can we just Brody do was, something? Can we just do something for now? From right now, you know, we, when we mention this guy's name, I know you you don't you hate him. I hate him. Uh, the murderer, yeah. Jose Gonzalez. Uh, uh, or, or what's always the word they use? Allege. Allege. Uh, alleged. Uh, the alleged murderer. The alleged killer of Bruiser Brody. Yeah, the alleged killer, Jose Gonzalez, defeated yeah. El Olimpico in 15 minutes, 22 yeah. seconds. I feel better now. Yeah. yeah. Continue. Anyway, I mean, um, it happened in Puerto Rico, as uh, most fans listening to the snow in San Juan. Uh, Gonzalez asked Brody to step into the shower. They were discussing business. There was a money issue that was festering for a while. There was an argument between the two. And, uh, of course, this has been covered on Dark Side of the Ring and other places. Uh, scuffle ensued, um, and Brody was stabbed in the shower. Tony Atlas ran into the shower, saw Brody bent over, holding his stomach. Uh, Atlas saw Gonzalez with the bloody knife. Um, you know, there's so much that went on there. I mean, the wrestlers were obviously afraid for their lives. No one was uh, snitching, calling the cops. Um, and the cops did get a complaint came into the locker room and they thought it was a wrestling angle or whatever happened. But anyway, that's the that's the story of Gonzalez. Uh, he was acquitted claiming self-defense in 1989. Brody and Gonzalez wrestled each other in the 70s. I got pictures of the night Brody beat the crap out of Gonzalez. I mean, roughed him up really bad, bloodied him up at a TV taping in Philadelphia. And I got three or four shots of that match and Gonzalez was just out of it. So uh, he had vowed to others that he was going to get Brody back for that beating that took place. And then there was other things. Obviously, there was no love lost between them and it came to a head and, and that's what happened. But anyway, we digress and screw Jose Gonzalez. Screw him. Let's go to match number two. Dick Slater. Dick the Rebel Slater, as I like to call him. Dick Slater defeated yeah. Mike Pappas in six minutes, 20 seconds. Yeah, uh, Slater... Uh, was making his debut, um, and his real name was Richard Van Slater. He debuted in 72. He retired in 1996, trained by Eddie Graham and Hiro Matsuda. Slater went to high school with Eddie Graham's son, Mike, and he was in the business for less than a year when he made his garden debut. So uh, very close with Eddie Graham. Graham had influence, and Slater got the shot at the garden. Uh, years later, in 86, he returned to the WWF with a Southern Rebel gimmick, and in June of 2004, Slater was convicted for the stabbing of of his girlfriend, he was sentenced to one year of house arrest, two years probation. Slater blamed the incident on influence from his addiction to painkillers. And in October 2018, Slater died due to heart complications at the age of 67. Uh, I want to go back here real quick to Dick Slater. And you were saying that he was trained by Eddie Graham. Slater went to high school with Eddie Graham's son, Mike. So what are we talking here? Eddie Graham, pretty smart guy. I, what is he? I, I know of three high school wrestlers that he turned into professional wrestlers. His son, mm -hmm. Mike, Steve Kern, and then Dick Slater. So that's three. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, and he had the influence on so many others. I mean, Eddie was um, legit. He was a, gr a great wrestler. He's a great booker, promoter. He had his demons as well, and of course... Um, uh, unfortunately killed himself. Yeah, so anyway, tragic story with the Grams, and he was, um, he was uh, with Dr. Jerry Graham, and there was you know, part of the Graham brothers' legacy uh, back from even the 60s, Dr. Jerry Graham and his uh, brother, Eddie. Eddie Graham had, had such a mind for the business, such a mind for he the did. business. Really smart yeah. man. And and being able to look at uh, three guys, three kids that weren't in the industry whatsoever, and, and he had the mind to know that these kids could protect the business. Yeah, and uh, there's probably so many others as well, but uh, what a legacy left and what a sad situation of the, of the tragedies uh, that the Graham family 
had uh, just really one of those dark stories of wrestling. Absolutely. And then Mike Pappas also was uh, the opponent. I always liked Mike. I mean, I really did. He was really uh, small, very compact, but very agile, uh, great flyer, great drop kicks. And uh, his real name was Manoli Savanis. And uh, there was a documentary called The Flying Greek. It's on YouTube, narrated by Medusa. And he was told by the WWWF offices that he was too small and that Mexico would be better fit for him. He did eventually make a name for himself in Mexico and got his first break in the States, in the Tennessee Territory, and was given the name Mike Pappas. Very nice. Let's go to match number three. And this is where I think, you know, you're talking about, we're talking HBO and they do something like this, and I have a, I've got a, I've got a question about this. My, match number three, Iron Mike <laughs> McCord fought Manuel yeah. Soto to a twenty-minute draw. <laughs> now I understand you have to go long for HBO, but couldn't you like go have a pin at like nineteen thirty or something? Because nobody really cares. No one's really interested in one loss records of these guys. But you go twenty minutes, and then you give them a draw. What do you? Uh, I don't like. You it. really hate the. You hate those twenty minute draws. I mean, we've I done over so many shows where you. This just kind of irks you. Well, but it, it was part of the deal. It was like you have a two and a half hour show. You know, you have a certain amount of time that's allocated. Uh, these were fillers. This was a filler. I mean, the fans were there. They're captive audience. There's nothing they can do about it. HBO, you know, if it's live, there's nothing they can do about it either. But this is the way it was. McCord and Soto, 20-minute draw. Do we wish we could change it? Yes, we can. That's it. They did it every freaking show. There was always a couple of snoozers that just were long and seemed dragged out. And that's where you'd go get your popcorn or get a hot dog or, you know, or start talking to some of your friends and not watching the show. But, okay, first of all, you can't do that anymore because you're in the second row. They can see you. But then you talk yes. about you talk about the next match, which is match number mm. four. Dean Ho defeated Pancho Valdez in 18 minutes, 45 seconds. So he beat yeah. him in 18 minutes. Why make everyone go through a 20-minute match for nothing for two guys that no one really cares about? That's right. all. If you take a look, if you take a look at those those matches there, you had um you really had out of a two and a half hour show, you had almost 40 minutes of just two matches. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And and you're like, well, why? Why? What are we doing here? Because and you wonder why we digress. And you know, this is what we do. Yeah. On the show, we we talk, we reminisce, we talk history. And when it comes down to the matches, you have matches like this where you know they were part of the show. You got to talk about them. You know what I used to love filler. about it is filler. I used to love uh, going to the garden and you have your opening match and it goes long and everyone you know you feel the match going too long. You feel it in your bones. And then when finally someone gets pinned, everyone erupts. Yeah. And then Russell's like, yeah, looking up, he's holding his arm up. He's all excited because everyone's cheering for him. They're not cheering for you because you had a great match. They're cheering for you because the match is over. Yes. Not the best feeling. Totally. Yeah. I, I yeah. just, I used to like, hear these, that bell ring. All right. Next. Next. Everyone's there to see the main events, everyone's there to see the attractions. And these were fillers. Exactly. So now we're going to go to a main event. Match number five, WWF world champion Pedro Morales defeated Larry Henning in 12 minutes, 45 seconds, when the match was stopped because of blood. Yeah, it was a it was a brawl, and uh, there was some uh, there was some color as they called it with Henning. Henning was a good brawler. 
This was an exciting match. It was even more exciting for me because I was sitting right up close. It was fun to watch. Of course, uh, Henning, what a legacy he had. He's also the father of uh, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning. Henning uh, made his debut in 1956. He retired in 1985. He was trained by Vern Gagne. And one thing I remember most about Henning, he was a teammate and tag team champion with Harley Race. Uh, so they had a pretty historic tag team uh, in the AWA territories. Following his retirement, from wrestling. He and his wife became owners of a real estate company in St. Cloud, Minnesota. In December of 2018, Henning died from kidney failure at the age of 82. And as we all know, uh, what a tragedy when his son, Kurt, passed away on February 10th, 2003 from acute cocaine intoxication at the young age of 44. Morales, on the other side of the coin, I mean, uh, and this was his last title defense at Madison Square Garden before losing it 18 days later on December 1st against Stand the Man Stasiak. So this was kind of his last uh, soiree as the champion there. Stasiak, of course, would only hold the title for nine days and Pedro held the title for 1,027 days, which I guess Roman Reigns might have surpassed him by now, even though Roman Reigns only wrestles once every two or three months. Anyway, I digress. From the Scott Teal book, Wrestling from the Garden, this is what makes Captain Lou Albano one of the greats because Morales was doing a pre-show promo in Spanish and then Albano walked on camera and in a kayfabe shoot, if you want to call it that, uh, said he could understand Spanish and he would translate what Pedro was saying for all the English speaking viewers because Pedro always did an interview and uh, McMahon would say, and Pedro, why don't you tell something uh, to all your Puerto Rican fans? And Morales would say that. So Albano walks on set. And when Pedro started talking, Albano, he interfered and he was like, I want all your greasy little blank Puerto Ricans to come to Madison Square Garden this Monday night. Uh, and so he he was doing that. And uh, he did. Albano predicted that it would be his last match. And ironically, 18 days later in Philly, uh, Morales did lose that title. So maybe there was a little swerve there for the fans. Nowadays, of course, on TV, you could never, ever say anything that was mentioned like the heels used to do on those promos. I mean, the disparaging racist comments that used to come out of their mouths, Blassie, Albano, the Grand Wizard, all the heels. I mean, you could never get away with any of that stuff now. Sometimes when I listen back to the vintage WWF promos that I have that I do put up for patrons from the years of 75, 76, 77, I get flabbergasted. Back then, you know, the world has changed so much, but it did uh, bring some heat with the Morales fans against, uh, you know, Albano. They didn't like him. And Henning, you know, being part of that, he just had the overspill of the hatred of the Puerto Rican fans. I, I know Richie and I are, are really Richie's putting together something for our next show, talking a lot yeah. about Pedro um, because yes. he's not going to have the title next time. Um, just just how big a draw he was at the Garden. He mm -hmm. was huge at the Garden. And anything you can do to get those fans a little more riled up. And Captain Lou Albano was one of the best in the business. You come into the, you come into the ring with somebody that no one's seen before. Not a lot of people know who this guy is. And in one month of promos, you can do enough damage to have people buy a ticket and sit in the seat, watch your guy wrestle your hero. Maybe because the advance was so small, maybe they decided to pull that off just to see if it would rile up the fans and motivate them to buy a ticket because yeah. it was a very small house. 
You never know. Speculation. Speculation. That's what we do the best in the show. A little speculation going on there. Uh, match number six. One of, one of the guys that I'm really starting to like, Don Leo Jonathan, defeated Tony Gurria in 18 minutes, 45 seconds. Yeah, they were obviously planning uh, another uh, title match with Jonathan as challenger because he was Bruno's first title defense at the Garden back uh, in January of 74. So uh, they were lifting him up again. And Jonathan was one of my all-time favorite wrestlers, always was and uh, could never understand why he didn't get the title himself. But him defeating Gurria, which was a big, big step because Gurria was beloved and he was, you know, a solid performer, tag team champion, all of that. One of the favorite baby faces of the era. So having Jonathan go over him clean at 1845, that was just kind of a strategy on their part as they wanted to lift Jonathan up before they gave him the first title shot against Bruno. Match number seven, Vern Gagne defeated WWWF Tag Team Champion Mr. Fuji in 12 minutes, 16 seconds. Vern uses a sleeper hole to win the match. I would like to see Vern putting Mr. Fuji in a sleeper hole. That would be entertaining. Yeah, Mr. Fuji, of course, went out like a light pretty quickly. And I did bring my 8mm camera to this show. Not a lot of rolls. I think I only brought two rolls of film. And, and, and I did film some of that match, Gagne against Mr. Fuji. But for me, I was always like... I was always in awe of Ganya just because of who he was, how much I read about him in the magazines, and the fact that he was a world champion appearing at the Garden, other than the WWF champ. You know, you talked about it earlier, how important the magazines were. I just didn't know how many magazines there were, and why didn't John go to his local store and get them? Well, they weren't available at his local store. Not all of them. New York City, when you're in New York City back in the day, and you go to a newsstand, they'd have newspapers from all over the country. They'd have magazines from all over the country. You get stuff there mm-hmm. that you couldn't get anywhere else. And yeah. that's what that's what you did. You had so you had your big bag of magazines of the month. Yes. And I'd read them religiously. I mean and, and, and that's how I really got to be enamored with Vern Gagne and Dory Funk. All the magazines had ratings. When I first started reading the wrestling magazines, it was, it was like, all right, WWF champion and then you would see AWA champion. And I'm like, what's the AWA? Yeah. You never seen the show. Then you realize that there was other wrestling outside of what you watched on TV. But Ganya for me was interesting. I mean, uh, Richie, of course, with his research, always does a wonderful job. Ganya was born Laverne Clarence Ganya. He died at age of 89 in 2015. He was, of course, well-known. And the reason I guess he was AWA champion so many times and for such a long period of time, because he was the AWA owner of the Federation. And he debuted in 1949, retired in 1981. He was an alternate for the U.S. freestyle wrestling team in the 1948 Olympics. He served two years in the U.S. Marines from 44 to 46. He was actually drafted in the 16th round by the NFL Chicago Bears in the 47 draft. And in 1960, he formed the American Wrestling Alliance. Later, it became the American Wrestling Association. And in 1991, the AWA shut down after 30 years, and he ended up in bankruptcy court. Uh, They made him a member of the WWE Hall of Fame in 2006. What a great career. And always overshadowed. Everyone else, you know, they talk about who was in there, and Hogan was there at one time, and other people. This was back in the day when, like, wrestlers were wrestlers. Yes. He could really hold his own. He could. He was a good shooter. Very good shooter. Him and Luthez. Uh, match number eight. And this is, I, I would really think, John, this is why I would go to the match just to see one of these guys wrestle. Match number eight, Chief J Strongbow and the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant. I uh, love to see Andre. Defeated Black Jack Lanza and Stan Stasiak in a best of two out of three falls, two falls to zero. 
Yeah, I remember it vividly because it's one of my favorite eight millimeter films that I shot back then. And I have a fabulous amount of that match on film. It was just wonderful. Always seeing Andre the Giant and seeing him on close up and him and Strongbow had this great synergy as a tag team, two of the most popular performers at the time and defeating two rough guys. I mean, Blackjack Lanza and soon to be the WWF champion, Stan Stasiak. So it was a great way to end the show. It was great seeing that match and having it on film to boot. I'm going to ask you, but I probably already know, how would you rate this card? Two thumbs up just because of where I sat. <laughs> exactly. That was it. Nothing else but the nothing else but the location. Uh five stars. Five stars. Okay. We'll let we'll let it we'll let it stand on that. You got you got some great wrestlers coming in there and you got Vern Gagne in there. You got a little Pedro in there. But the main thing is seeing Andre wrestle again, which I've never again I tell you, I never got to see and I regret never getting to see Andre, especially in his prime. I can just imagine at the end of the second fall, it was always uh Chief J Strongbow jumping into Andre's arms and Andre holding him up yes. like a little baby. I always thought that was pretty I have, cool. I have so many shots of that. <laughs> of them because they did it all the time all the time it was like their thing it was their thing our next garden show december 10th 1973 headlining our next show the wwwf heavyweight champion stan stasiak taking on challenger bruno san martino which just sounds really awesome also on the card a return match with pedro morales versus larry henning in a lumberjack death match what is that going to look like i have no idea because they changed the matches in the wwwf so john we i am looking forward to finding out what exactly is a wwwf lumberjack match and also seeing our first and last appearance of stan stasiak wearing the heavyweight championship yeah, I mean, uh, it's a lumberjack match, which was really wrestlers around the ring. And this will be such a memorable, it's one of the most memorable shows I ever went to, to this day, because Bruno San Martino comes back, wins the WWF title from Stan Stasiak. What a celebration at the Garden that night. I can't wait to review it. But also, John, the Golden Greek Tolis, makes his return to Madison Square Garden after many, many years. And he takes on Victor Rivera. It was one of the most memorable Garden shows I ever went to and I can't wait to review it with everybody and yourself Tim and we will have probably have a special guest like Harry Silken uh, has uh, reached out to him and, and he has uh, graciously agreed to come on f- to review that card with us I was just going to tell you a second ago should, should we say that spoiler alert Bruno wins a title yeah it has been 50 years so it's really not a spoiler alert anymore right no reason for a spoiler on that it's, one, my it's friend. It's fifty years ago. I think we have. I think enough time yeah, has passed. I think people knew what. I think people know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to hearing you and Kerry talking about being at that match and what it was like being in the arena on that night. The changing hands of a title is always amazing, but this is one. This is a special one. It's not just any title changing. It's the heavyweight championship title, and it's going back to Bruno, where you thought all along it belonged. That is correct. I couldn't wait. Once I found out that that was going down, man, I was excited. And we had a party, and I'll tell you about that party on the next episode, but we actually had a party before the show, before it even happened, at uh, the bar at Madison Square Garden in the bowling alley, because we all knew Bruno was back, and he was going to be world champion once again. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Once again, we want to do a shout-out to Scott Teal and Crowbar Press. He wrote our Bible. We talk about this all the time. When we talk to you and you know, you're hearing about the match and you remember it and you look at your pictures, but if we didn't have this book, I don't know what we do. It's the Bible. It really is Wrestling in the Garden, The Battle for New York, Work Shoots and Double Crosses, only available from Scott Teal and Crowbar Press Books. Go to crowbarpress.com and get your copy of it. You'll love it. All right. Anything else, John? 
That's it, my friend. Our next show is December. We'll see you then. For John O'Rizzi and Rich Jersey, I'm Tim Poutre. We'll see you next time. <laughs>